Okay, let's go ahead and get started, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's text, Has American Christianity Failed? We left off on page 46 in the middle of this chapter on Holy Scripture. And Wolfmuller has pointed out for us three areas in which American Christianity, broadly speaking, has failed. And point one would be on the clarity of the Scriptures. This is kind of where we get this subjectivism on a more formal level. We say, well, you know, you're, you're Presbyterian, I'm Lutheran, so-and-so is Roman Catholic. We can't really tell who's right or who's wrong. Let's just all kind of agree um, that we can't know. And that is ultimately the same as saying that Scripture is unclear on these various points of doctrine. Now, less formally, the subjectivism is experienced, for example, in Bible classes where we are asked, what does this verse mean to you? as if it doesn't have its own inherent objective meaning uh, and clarity. Also, okay, so clarity is the first point, and second would be sufficiency. Is scripture sufficient, or do I need this additional voice of God in my head or in my heart or somewhere outside of the scriptures directing me in the way I should go or um, confirming me in, in the path I've chosen, etc. Uh, no is the answer, even though, of course, American Christianity largely says Scripture is insufficient and we need to have God laying things on our heart and directing us and all these other sorts of things that we've invented. But, of course, the testimony of the Scriptures themselves, as well as the Lutheran tradition, is that Scripture is sufficient. It's, it's all we need. And we're going to um, explore that in a little more depth and detail in the next chapter. Last but not least, and our topic for today, efficacy. Are the scriptures efficacious? Okay, and efficacy or efficacious, what does, that, what does that mean? In a very general sense, in the way that we're using it is, do, do the scriptures affect anything? Is there, is there a power in them to do or accomplish something or not? Okay, or are they, what would be the contrast of that? Are they just mere information? So let's dig into this. Page 46, efficacy. The scriptures are efficacious. This is the most important of all of the attributes of scripture, and it is lost in American Christianity. American Christianity understands scripture as information, but it has no power unless we act upon it. All right, so that takes us back, doesn't it, to what uh, Wolfmuller introduced us to. Remember the, the four characteristics of American Christianity, revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. And if there's a, if there's a, uh, a connection, a thing that connects all of them together at a, just the most basic level, 
It's that they're all oriented towards the self, toward the individual, toward the human being and the human being's actions. Okay? And so then we see this as well playing itself out in the question of efficacy. American Christianity by and large sees the scriptures as information and information upon which the individual needs to act and thus the efficacy is not in the scriptures but in the person. You see? So the scriptures aren't efficacious, the person is efficacious. That's American Christianity and that's the error that Wolf Mueller is here pointing out. In fact, as we're going to see in this chapter and in the next especially, it is the word that is efficacious, God who is efficacious, and people who are not. We people are worked upon by God who is efficacious through his word, which is efficacious. Okay, so once more in that, that first larger paragraph, American Christianity understands scripture as information, but it has no power unless we act upon it. This accounts for the great number of ifs in the preaching of American churches. If you accept, if you receive it, if you commit yourself. The scriptures tell us what to do, but it is up to us to make it count. For American Christianity, salvation is a potential. God gives you the information in the Bible. Now it's up to you if you will follow the instructions and be saved. Yeah, that is, across the board, American Christianity. That's the general teaching, the general understanding, and it's wrong. All right, let's continue with Wolf Mueller as he leads us then into what is correct, what is right. Oh, yes, please. Let's uh, pause for just one second. Can we get you a microphone for the benefit of our online audience? Oh. Thank you. Uh, I might have this acronym wrong, but I've heard evangelicals often refer to the Bible, be but, you know, spell it out, as basic instruction uh, for before, before leaving Earth. Oh, good. Okay, good. Thanks for helping. <laughs> We've me. all been thoroughly catechized by that. <laughs> good. But I mean, it, I think that's really appropriate um, because it. Well, it's appropriate. So, so Wolf Mueller's going to treat this. I don't know if you were able to read ahead. Wolf Mueller's going to treat this on page forty-eight in a in a critical way. Uh, because, because as you as you diagnose this, and I'll let him do the heavy lifting here, but basic instruction before leaving Earth, if that's what the Bible is, then who has to act upon the instructions, right? When I open up my my new microwave and I get out the user's manual, it doesn't build itself. When I get out the user, I'm the one who's efficacious, right? The user's manual is just inert instructions, information, and then I'm the one doing the doing. And uh, so the scriptures are quite different than that. The scriptures work in a way that is, that is divine and miraculous, where the word actually does the work. It would, it would be tantamount to God speaking and the microwave being installed, you know, put together and installed. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, uh, I'm, glad you brought, I'm glad you brought that up because that is um, in the backdrop. We'll see how Wolf Mueller handles that. Okay, so uh, moving along just a little bit here into the positive material, what, Luth uh, what Wolf Mueller is going to put forward for us, the large type. 
If, however, the Bible is the very word of God, then it is a different kind of word. Most human talk is descriptive, but God's word is creative. I can tell you if it is light or dark, but God says, let there be light, and the darkness becomes light. Pow, his word creates. His word declares. God's word makes things happen. Now, what Wolfmuller has done for us is collected a whole number of scriptures that speak to this point. So we'll run through these uh, rapidly, but you'll see that this is a, a major teaching in the scriptures. From Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. From Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's always interesting. We don't, we don't even hear until the word of Christ comes and Christ creates the hearing. The word of Christ creates the hearing in us and from that hearing comes faith. All right, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he say that? Genesis 1 has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the whole, what's Paul doing there in his theology? In the same way that God in the beginning says, let there be light and there's light, he now converts us from darkness to light by his speaking. Now, Ephesians, I guess here, here we've got three texts all, all woven together. Come out, said Jesus to Lazarus. That's John eleven forty three. You know, and that's that's such a fun one. That's really all the text you need because Lazarus is is die, is lay is laying there in the tomb dead. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, if, Lazarus, if you want to make a free will decision to come out of the tomb, then he can come out." Right? Uh, he doesn't say, "Okay, okay, Lazarus, I'm meeting you halfway. Now you have to meet me the other halfway and revive yourself from the dead." Uh, there's there's only the unilateral word of God. A Lazarus finds himself awake, alive, and coming out at the command of the Lord Jesus. So the word is efficacious in and of itself. I mean, nor in this instance, you know, like my kids when I try to wake them up for school and they just throw the blanket over their head, nor in this instance does Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus says, I'm going to use my free will to reject you, just lays back down in the tomb. No, no, it's an efficacious word of God that gives, that gives life. So Lazarus comes forth. Jesus, come out, Jesus said to Lazarus, and he woke up from the dead. That's John 11. Okay, what about Mark 4? Be still, Jesus said to the storm, and the waves went to sleep. Isn't that interesting? How many times in the scripture Jesus heals or stills the storm or casts out a demon by speaking. If he's, if he's truly God, what would he need to do? Maybe just think it. Maybe just wave his hand. But why is, why is Christ always using his word? And, and in, in, in other instances, using a sign. 
attached to his word. Think of the, the mud he makes and wipes over the man's eyes and he tells him to wash in the pool. Why is, why is Jesus doing this? Well, he is catechizing his disciples and catechizing us that this is the way in which he works through his word and through means, through sacraments. Okay? So we have, a, we have here an example of, of stilling the storm. Jesus doesn't just wake up and wave his hand, but rather says, be still. And the, as Wolfmuller says, and the waves went to sleep. Believe, Jesus says to you, and you believe. Now here, referencing Romans 1 again, that is the gospel, that is the power to salvation. And Ephesians 2, 8, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. There's the explicit reference to faith not being our own doing, but God's working in us. Okay, he continues on with reference here uh, to 1 Corinthians 1. The power of the word of God, writes Wolfmuller, was not simply for the beginning when the voice of God created the cosmos from nothing. This creation continues in his word and the preaching of the word today. Paul writes, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Well, there is a whole lot we can unpack there, but the wisdom of the world, does that get you back to God? No. And so God chooses not to be accessible to the wisdom of the world, but only accessible through his preaching, which Paul very creatively calls foolishness. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of the world, because the foolishness of God, namely the preaching of Christ, brings us back to God, whereas all the world and all its wisdom and all its endeavors and attempts to give back to God cannot. Okay, there's certainly more to 1 Corinthians 1 and, and that passage and that argument, but I think that what we said is sufficient to make the point. Wolfmuller continues, the word of God, and here Paul is talking about the preached word of God. Um, the word of God, and here Paul is talking about the preached word of God, is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to save. The word of God is the means the Lord uses to work, to create and sustain faith, to deliver spiritual gifts, to convict us of our sin, and to comfort terrified consciences. Okay, sometimes in Lutheranism we have, we have different phrases we use, like the means of the Spirit, or the means of grace. And what we're saying there is, is the word and the sacraments. These are the means or the ways in which the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts. The means and the ways by which God, in his gracious attitude towards us, communicates that grace in Christ Jesus to us. And so that shorthand language, means of the Spirit, means of the grace, that, that we frequently use in Lutheranism, um, come from this theology. Now, note this last sentence. I think this is beautifully written. And is a, it is a nice summary, in fact. If someone asked you why you go to church, this would be a great answer to give. The word of God is the means the Lord uses to work to create and sustain faith. Not only is faith created in, the terms of, in terms of conversion, but 
it's created in terms also of once I am converted, I may be ignorant of something or I may have a false belief about something and it is the word of God that alleviates my ignorance or corrects my false understanding. And so in that sense, faith is being created all the time, all the time. And I have to say that I, it is a frequent experience of mine as I'm listening to the scriptures being proclaimed or a sermon being preached on those scriptures that, that you realize something that you didn't realize before or you see something differently or you come to understand something better. That is the creation of faith, working present tense by the word. And then also, not only to create faith, but to sustain faith. And this is something that is that is always taken for granted and it's one of the most sorrowful things that we pastors see and that is people have this assumption that I'm a Christian and I can cut myself off from the church, off from hearing the Word of God, off from receiving His sacraments and still remain a Christian. Even if that is true for some time, the departure, or maybe I should put it this way, the decay of one's faith is immediate. And it begins, it begins its decay, the faith that in various articles and various understandings of the Christian faith immediately decays, and that decay continues until it is just a shell of what it was in it, of its former self. And if it continues to decay, it ultimately dies. When we cut ourselves off from the Word and Spirit of God, we are going to spiritually die. And that, unfortunately, is, is what happens when we no longer go to church for whatever reason we give ourselves or whatever excuse we give ourselves. I don't like the pastor. I don't like the people. It's an ugly building. It's stuffy. They never run the air. I, you know, whatever these reasons are, that we, they're, they're just excuses. And if we truly understood that the Word of God is efficacious, not only creating faith in us, but sustaining faith in us, then we would put up with all of these other external things and more simply to have that one valuable thing. I mean, think about it. We so value Chick-fil-A, we're willing to sit in that ridiculous line for 40 minutes and pay the ridiculous prices. and that. We're willing to put up with so much, aren't we? Because we value the thing itself. Um, and you can extend that out. So if by analogy you're, you're willing to do that, then why by analogy wouldn't you be willing to put up with whatever weaknesses or foibles there are in a congregation or in a divine service in order to receive that word of God? Okay, so we have uh, the word of God creating faith and sustaining faith. And Wolf Miller continues, um, so the Lord... So the Word of God is the means the Lord uses to work, to create and sustain faith, to deliver spiritual gifts. Correct. It is the Word that forms spiritual gifts within us. If you think of the, the fruit of the Spirit, the greatest of which is love, how is that produced in us? The Word that tells us of the love of God. We love because he first loved us. It's the proclamation of that love of God for us that embeds itself within us and becomes a spiritual gift whereby we love one another as he has loved us. Just one example. Okay. So again, the word is used by the Lord to deliver spiritual gifts, then also to convict us of our sin 
and to comfort terrified consciences. Now, the convicting of the sin is the work of what we would call the law, and the comforting of our terrified consciences is what we would call the gospel, or the work of the gospel. So law and gospel here. But again, the law shows us our sin, shows us our need for our Savior, which we constantly need to be reminded of. More coming in the next chapter on this. Because our default position is, I'm not that bad. And insofar as I slip into thinking I'm not that bad, I slip into thinking of, I don't need Jesus all that bad. And the, the, so the more we slip into I'm not that bad, the more we say, Jesus, it's fine if I don't need that much of you. And we depart from our Savior. So the law proper comes in and convicts us of our sin, shows us that we do indeed need a Savior. And then the gospel proper comes in and comforts us by saying you have a Savior in Christ Jesus. In fact, a Savior who not only fulfills what the, the deficit of the law, but his gospel is so expansive it will cause you to marvel. It is endlessly expansive in terms of depth, in terms of breadth, and the gospel itself is, is both a present and a future reality. And so the gospel is inexhaustible. Why do we want our consciences comforted? Because without consciences comforted, with our consciences defiled by sin, we're terrible people. <laughs> we're terrible to be around. Lots and lots of times where uh, you are grumpy and you don't know why, um, or people around you are grumpy and you don't know why, or they snap, or they're not impatient, um, or they're morose, or they can't take any, any like, like the slightest little thing sets them off. Very frequently, not always, very frequently at the root of this is a defiled conscience. An unclean heart that sets everything wrong. It can even set our perceptions wrong. We can perceive things not as they truly are. We can perceive things not graciously, but we can perceive things as critically. We can, in that, in that internal hurt of knowing that we've fallen short of the glory of God, we can try to attempt to salve that by pointing out how everyone else is falling short of the glory of God and doing it worse than us. And in fact, the only reason we have is because it's their fault. So, so much, so much um, of our lives we can attribute to having a, a defiled conscience, an unclean heart. So the gospel comes and cleanses our heart, sets our conscience right. We are right with God, not because of anything that we've merited or done to make it even, not because of some giant karma system where we finally even things out, but solely because of the graciousness of God in Christ Jesus and because of his blood that atones, us, uh, atones for our sins and his claiming us as his own in the waters of holy baptism. And with our hearts set right and strengthened in this gospel, our consciences consoled, um, then we're set right to deal with one another. We suddenly become forbearing and forgiving and merciful and loving and long-suffering and all of these other things that the scriptures speak, kind and gentle and all the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so cannot be underestimated at all. Even if, even if you limited it, why do you, why do you go to church? It's not that God has changed. It's that you have you and I have become defiled throughout the week, and we need to come and be set right by God and by His Word. And so, receiving the Word of God in divine service in just this way, even if this were the only point, to have our consciences set right, that would be enough. But of course, there are all these other elements as well, not only the writing of our conscience, but the spiritual gifts, creating and sustaining faith. All of it comes to us by His Word as a gift from God to us. 
who doesn't receive these things? Only those who don't want them. <laughs> Only those who reject them. Only those who choose other things. This is kind of the, this is kind of the uh, if you want to ask that question, you want Jesus' own answer, it's the parable of the sower. Remember the things that can take us away from the Word of God. The Word of God is sown everywhere. Why doesn't it grow here? Well, the birds come and swoop it up. The devil and the demons come and distort and take it away from us. What about here? Why does it grow up for a little while and then uh, wither in the sun? It has no root. It's received joyfully at first, but it can take no endurance, no persecution, no heat from the sun. What about uh, that seed that is scattered and, and grows up, but then it grows up amidst the weeds and gets choked out eventually? What are those weeds? The cares of this world, whether those be positive or negative, whether those be love for the things of the world that chokes out faith, or um, whether that be the, the hatred and the grind and the turmoil of the world, and one simply despairs and gives up. Okay, so these are the enemies of the Word, and we want to recognize them in us, rid ourselves of them so that the Word can bear fruit within us. Alright, so that's uh, Wolf Mueller's opening salvo on the efficacy of the Scriptures. I'll pause and see if you have any reflections or any questions. Yes, please. I see a couple hands raising. Churches that don't um, hold to the efficacy of Scripture, but Scripture would still be efficacious. Is would that right? still be efficacious. Correct. Uh, Correct. And that's, that's really, frankly, why we rejoice anywhere where the Scriptures are. Okay? But what we... What we're concerned about is that the rest of the theology undermines that belief that the scriptures are efficacious and are actually doing something. I think you see this where it's like, no matter what denomination you're in, let's say the word of God is read in a given service, and then the pastor gives us talk and people go out and they say, I don't feel like I was fed. Well, was the word of God there or not? Now, if you say it was like wrongly interpreted or interpreted and preached in such a way that it took away, effectively took away the word of God, then you could have a complaint. But insofar as the word of God is there, how are you not fed? And there, there what we're really analyzing is we're saying there's this theology that tells us that the word of God isn't enough. The pastor has to make the Word of God do something, or the hearer has to make the Word of God do something. Some human being has to make the Word of God do something. So, fair point, Liz, that objectively, wherever the Word is, it's active and effective, not returning to God void or empty. Uh, and yet we can have a theology that entirely clouds that over so that people are, uh, are kept from those blessings and benefits by their own false belief. Make sense? All right, fair enough. I see it. I, did I see another hand? Did you still have a comment? Well, as you were talking, I was thinking of two verses. Uh, one from Jeremiah, where God promises to give us a new heart, and in the New Testament, Philippians, where uh, uh, it stated that God, who began a good work, will be faithful to complete it. So I, I really, until now, I've really, what I hear you saying is God only works through. The, his his word, scripture, and uh, 
the sacraments related to that, which are really scriptural also. Mm -hmm. So I used to think, well, there are other ways that God works uh, and uh, who's fulfilling those promises, giving me a new heart. Maybe it was by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, but it's always connected to the Word is what I hear you're saying. Is that my... Right, right, yeah, it's always connected to the Word. I think that, you know, even our... Even where the word maybe ostensibly doesn't seem to be there, it's nonetheless there. So that if you were meditating on your own and you were saying, I'm in a bad mood, why am I in a bad mood? And you're kind of digging through your, your emotions and layers of emotions and, and maybe you finally get down to the root and it's like, because, because of this thing that I have done or not done, right? As Christians, we want to immediately, we want to immediately remember Christ Jesus and the promises of God and the promises of Scripture. Where did we learn those to remember them? From the Word, right? And, and I think that that's why our Lord uses the image of the seed being planted. It's not always immediately effective. You know, remember the Matrix where he like, uh, Neo is there and, and, and he's like, He's like, now I know judo. It's like instantly, right? This instant download of, I got it all. You know, I wish I could preach that way. Like you'd have a sermon, you'd be like, I understand the Trinity. Like, you know, it just doesn't happen that way. It's more like a seed that goes in the dirt and sits there and looks like it does nothing. And then finally looks like it's doing the most insignificant little thing. And then eventually blossoms up. I mean, this is quite like Jesus' sermon on the mustard seed too, isn't it? The most ridiculous little thing that looks like it does nothing, that goes into the that looks like it's dead and will do nothing, ends up producing such a plant that even the birds can come and nest on it. And so I think that's kind of the picture, is, is that those words go within us, and um, they may not be, you may not walk out of the sermon going, I know how to handle that. But when the stress, when the pressure, when the situation emerges, that word of God has been planted within, and it comes out, and it's fruitful and it's living and it's useful and you can um, you can sort of fight that internal battle of of I am now I, confessing my sin before God I am remembering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how do you know any of that or have any of that the word of God has already been planted within you yeah. so that would just be one example of where it might it might experientially seem disconnected from the word, but in fact isn't at all. That word's been planted within us, lying there, and now it's growing. Yeah. Please. It sounds like this is an explanation for why the Bible talks so much about false teachers and false mm. prophets, because if the word has this efficaciousness and power, then having a pastor who is misleading his followers into misinterpreting the scripture, it's doing exactly what you just described, and that's so dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even, even worse than those who murder the body are those who murder the soul. And how do you murder the soul? Um, remember what Jesus, what Jesus refer, says to say, you're, you're a liar and a murderer from the start. I mean, that's what he's talking about, because because Satan takes the truth of God's word, lies about it, did God really say, twists it, manipulates it, and murders souls, takes them not just into temporal death, but into eternal death. And so, yes, this is where false teaching, I'm so glad you brought that up, like we, we see how important it is. If God's, if God's word is the center and the means through which he gives us all these gifts and blessings, if you're Satan, how on earth are you going to attack that? Precisely at the source, through the word. 
This, by the way, too, is, okay, so if you believe everything this page says about the Word, then you already believe the sacraments whether you realize it or not. Because the sacraments, the power of the sacrament of baptism isn't in the water, it's in the Word of God in and with the water, you see. Same with the Lord's Supper or absolution. The power isn't in the pastor in absolution, it's in the Word of God spoken by the pastor. The power of God isn't in the bread and wine. It's in the word of God that make the bread his body and the wine his blood, given and shed for us for our forgiveness. So the power is in the word. So if you already believe the word can do all this, then you already believe the sacraments. You just don't, might not know it yet, but you do. It's one of my favorite lines. You might not realize you're a Lutheran yet, but you are. <laughs> if you believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, and then what else might we connect with your idea? That if, if, if all of these blessings and benefits come to us through the word, then Satan is going to be hell-bent, um, pardon the pun, on distorting that word. That's what he's, but now extend this. If we've just said, what is a sacrament but the word of God with a sign around it? What is Satan's next attack going to be? If not the word itself, then the sacraments. And this is why, uh, um, why, why the sacraments are this giant scandal. You know, and why there's all this ink spilled and all this fighting about the Lord's Supper and baptism and absolution. That's not by accident. Where there's smoke, there's fire, and the fire is Satan trying to strip us from these things. You know, these are the very means of the Spirit, so the unholy spirit is going to try to rob us of those means. It's just, it just makes perfect sense. So this is the real work of the devil. Um, you know, and, and one of the the subterfuges he does in our culture is, who's, who's the devil? What are the demons doing? They're the, ones, they're the ones walking around up in your attic and rattling the chains and creaking the floorboards, and they're the ones slamming your cabinets and you know, free, freaking everyone out so that there's an HBO documentary and countless movie spinoffs and all of this. Okay, what is the devil doing by any of that? Is he leading anyone into hell? No. No. What is he doing? Subterfuge, distraction, here's, here's what the devil looks like. What does the devil not look like? The angel of light preaching from the pulpit, distorting God's word, leading you away from the true word and sacraments, taking you away from Christ. That's where the devil really is. Luther has a more sophisticated take on this where he talks about the white devil, the devil masquerading as an angel of light and all the churchly, churchly, godly, biblical things he does, right? Um, and then the, the black devil, where the devil reveals himself for who he really is. And here you've got like murders and wars and genocides and holocausts and all of these things. And the devil has these two faces, but where he truly does the most damage from an eternal perspective. Remember, the resurrection at the end is all flesh are raised, is raised from the dead. All people are raised from their graves. The devil's work of temporal death is completely undone for all. So where does he do, do his true damage? False belief, leading us away from God and into eternal damnation. Right? That's why Jesus says, uh, Fear not he who can kill the body, that's Satan. But the one who can destroy the soul in hell, that's God. So fear God, not Satan. Yeah. Okay, please. One, one more comment. I just, yes. I really, that's why I appreciate those series that you've done, and I know Pastor Wolf Mueller has done them too on issues, etc. It's the, you know, exposing the proof texts the false teachings oh, the yes. false thinking the wrong thinking about things those are great series because that's exactly you take the word of god and it's twisted just a little bit mm -hmm. for wrong thinking so those are great series yeah yeah thank you for thank you for mentioning that i know um pastor wolf is doing a whole bunch of those um 
I, I forget what exactly it's called, but something to the effect of like debunking uh, American evangelical proof texts or something like, or cliches or something like that. Yeah, he's got this ongoing series that's expansive and it's good. Yeah, so if you're hung up on one of those, you can search the Issues Etc. website and find those. So, Yeah, and then I did a series a, a while back. I hope it's still good. <laughs> but uh, um, the Gospel for Former Evangelicals, those coming out of evangelicalism, how to kind of like uh, rinse, wash, repeat, whatever, um, your, your way into a, a more historic and biblical Christianity. Huh? Yeah, thank you. Okay, so that's, F oh yeah. Two things, before you said that, I, I remember in the past here at the church, former evangelicals coming to the church and actually crying outside because they've heard the word of God. Yeah, and you know, right. it's very touching. Um, the other thing I was gonna mention is how the devil works. Just look at Europe. I mean, the churches are dead. They're there, the edifices are there. But it's a state church, and you know you see it in their movies, you see it in their TV the way they kind of put the church off to the side, like mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. not a big deal. Yeah. And I think the devil's had his way there, and yeah. if we're not careful. Yeah, exactly. And there's kind of a chicken and a, there's a chicken and an egg kind of thing there, like which came first? Did the gospel stop being preached, and thus the churches die? <laughs> you know, that's probably. Probably in many of those churches, the gospel was probably not preached, and so they eventually died. But there's the other side of the coin is where the gospel is preached, but people despise it, then it goes away too. You know, and that's that's Luther talks about that. He uses the analogy of the rain cloud, and this comes right out of Scripture. How God causes it to rain, but when people take it for granted and despise Him and do idolatry, He moves the cloud along, and uh, and that's the same with the gospel. If it's there, yeah. If it's if it's there, and just because the word is efficacious, though, doesn't mean it can't be rejected. I mean, it can, in fact, be rejected. At least if we're talking about conversion or we're talking about disbelief or that kind of thing. Remember how what Jesus says. I mean, and all of this is kind of difficult. We need to we need to really bind ourselves to the Word of God in order to understand this. Um, but remember what Jesus says of Jerusalem: How I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but alas, the word of God wasn't efficacious. No, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. Yeah, this is, um, this is one of the differences between us and Calvinists on this point. In Calvinist theology, the tulip in each of those letters stands for something. The I in tulip stands for irresistible grace. What do we see when Jesus says, how I long to gather you together, that's grace, but you would not have it. That looks to us like resistible grace. <laughs> yeah, it looks to us like grace being resisted. That's the whole point of Jesus' lament. So, yeah, it's a complicated, yeah, complicated topic to be sure, um, but uh, we, do see, we do see how the efficacious word can nonetheless be rejected. Why in some instances it is, in some instances it isn't, is largely mysterious to us. God doesn't give us a chapter and verse that grants an answer to that question. In fact, our Lord's answer to that question when we pose it or a question similar to it is effectively this, you worry about you. Jesus' way of saying that is instead of answering the question, he speaks directly to the one asking the question and says, repent or else you will perish. Yeah. Please. Okay, so that kind of helps answer the question I had because 
earlier you used Jesus calling Lazarus from the dead mm -hmm. and you come, you mm -hmm. get the call mm -hmm. and you yeah, come. you're made alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so then, so maybe it's the individual. You just said that, about the irresistible, it just kind of seemed like a contradiction, but mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to be sure. This is exactly the kind of challenge I was talking about, and thank you for bringing it up, because it's, it's not so simple. The scriptures speak about um, some of these difficult questions in many different, in many different ways. So the way we might think of Lazarus is he's, he's made alive by the word. What choice, I, I mean, again, this is, kind of shows you the silly nature of this question, but like, what choice does Lazarus have in being alive? Well, he could commit suicide. <laughs> and, you know, and this is like, this is why people rush in. It's like faith is a gift. And it's like, yeah, what you could always reject. It's like, it's kind of beside the point. Like, yeah, well, Lazarus could always kill himself. Yeah, but he's not going to. And so why would you reject? And what are we trying to demonstrate by that point? And so, so we want to make sure that we're using that Lazarus example rightly. And, and the right understanding is that conversion is a monergistic act. So by monergism, that's a fancy theological word, but mono means one. And that, that ergos, that word, uh, ergism, Okay, monergism, there's one person working, and that's God. Okay, the opposite of that would be synergism. There's two things working together, sin, and those two things are, that are working together are God and man. So what, what we see in Scripture is that faith is a gift. You have been justified by grace, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God. And so we want to use then by analogy, uh, Lazarus to be an example of the monergism, the gifting of faith. Uh, he who did not believe now believes. He who is dead is now alive. So we just want to be careful how we use that. Now, if the question is rather a different question, um, why don't some believe? then we can talk about how grace is in fact resistible. We can quote our Lord in the, in the sermon, the parable of the sower and the seeds and how the fault lies not with the seed nor with the sower, but with these external circumstances. In some instances, the devil, in other instances, the pressures of the world, and in others, the appetites and desires of the sinful heart. The devil, the world, and our sinful nature. These are the obstacles to God's word. So it just, it really depends on the question. And the rub comes in when we try to take these two teachings in a vacuum and harmonize them together, and we find we can't do it. And then we end up choosing one or the other. Okay, so what am I talking about if I take it outside of scriptural imagery and language and do dogmatic or systematic theology? We're talking about holding two doctrines together that seem to be entirely contradictory. In fact, I think that this is where we, where we ultimately come to a maturity and understanding any article of the faith is only when we can articulate it in such a way that we see what appears to our reason to be a contradiction. Okay? What's the, what, what are the two principles here? Gratia universalis, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the first principle. And the second principle is sola gratia, that it is by grace alone that we are given the gift of faith and thus saved. Okay? Try to hold those two doctrines together and your brain is going to recoil. 
God desires all men to be saved. That's true, if that's true, and it is, because the scriptures say God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. But then if it's also true that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works and on account of faith and this not of your own doing, etc., etc., the kind of the Ephesians 2 deal, then, then if God desires all men to be saved and God alone saves, then why aren't all saved? You see? So we've, t- we've got two biblical teachings, that God desires all men to be saved, and we've got the other biblical teaching that God is the one who does the saving through his word monergistically. If we've got those two biblical teachings, we can't get them to reconcile in our minds. We can't get them to work in our minds, but we know the scriptures teach both. What are we to do? Teach both. (laughs) Okay, what's another example that you're much more comfortable with and much more familiar with? Jesus is true God and true man. Now you've got no problems about this. You don't have an existential crisis or crisis of faith every time Christmas rolls around. But you should if you're going to be consistent. If the other gives you a heartache, this one ought to give you even more, I think, because it's a more difficult uh, conundrum, theologically speaking. If he is true God, what does he know? Everything. Everything. If he's true man, what does he know? A finite amount. And the scriptures tell us as much. He knows all things, and yet he grew in wisdom and stature. Well, which is true? Yes. <laughs> and, that, and that's precisely... So now, what is God's design? I mean, this is a more important question, maybe. Um, what is God's design in creating every article of the faith such that if you understand it thoroughly and biblically, your reason is recoiling and your faith alone has to grasp hold of the word and say, I believe? Well, isn't that the root of epistemology, the root of faith? It takes us all the way back to the fall. God says it is this way. Eve's reason, God said, don't eat the fruit. It's got death in it. Eve's reason recoils because why? It looks good for food. It can't possibly cause death. And so she believes her reason, her wisdom, instead of God's word. Now God is setting that right over and over and over again. By the way, this is exactly Paul's argument. If you want to get this argument in depth and you think that this is something Pastor Rody invented, no, I've plagiarized it all from St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We got a taste of that. If you're back on page 47, nearly in the middle of the page, just toward the upper half of the page, he quotes, Wolf Miller quotes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, The world did not know God through wisdom. Think of the wisdom of Eve. It looks good for food. Maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe he didn't really say. That's her wisdom, isn't it? Over and against the foolishness of God's word, this perfectly delectable looking fruit is poison and will lead you into death. That's foolishness. Hers is wisdom, so she goes with wisdom. And man has been going with wisdom ever since. And so in realizing this at a really deep epistemological level of epistemology is how you know what you know and the ground of what you know and how you come to the truth and how you even like sort of build your system of knowledge. We can see even from Eve this template that our own fallen wisdom and the collective fallen wisdom of human beings is only going to lead us away from God. God wants us to put that away and trust his word. What happens when our reason contradicts with his word or our reason can't can't 
believe his word because his word apparently contradicts beautiful fruit, looks good for food, and don't eat at its death. That's a contradiction. I'm going to go with what I think is best. I'm going to choose a side. Well, this whole process is the way in which we fall into sin, reject God, and continue to reject God, and continue to fall into unbelief and sin. So what is the way out? Where God presents us with the same kind of dilemma, pleasing to the eye but death. Now he says, displeasing to the eye but life. Where does he do that? In the Lord's Supper. It's a reversal, isn't it? What was once pleasing to the eye but had death is now completely displeasing to the eye. Who wants to eat the body and blood of anyone? That's complete reason recoils at that. But in it is life. So God is constantly calling us out of our reason into faith in him. And then we start realizing that all the articles, we talked about Christ, true God, true man. He knows everything. He learns. Reason wants to reject that. Reason wants to say that's nonsense. Away with that. And that's the wisdom of the world. But again, God wants us to be, God wants to be believed. He wants us to believe him, not his wisdom, because that's the healing of the fall. That's the undoing of the fall manifest in each one of us as we believe in Christ Jesus. And then as we submit to his word in every article of the faith, this is how we are conformed into the image of his son Jesus, who hears every word of the Father and believes it and does it. And this is the manifest undoing of the fall in each and every one of us. Okay, so that's the call of theology, and that's the practice of theology, is that in every, one, that in every heart we be returned to Eden. Make sense? I hope. Little? Okay. So, um, we, then we, don't, we don't recoil then when we find in this, in this doctrine that God desires all men to be saved, and God alone saves, but not all are saved. And how is, why some and not others? And these kinds of questions we simply are going to allow reason to be offended and to stand back and say, well, that sounds contradictory. And we're going to say, well, doesn't it, don't, don't all the articles of the faith sound contradictory? That God is three and one and one and three? That Jesus is true man and true God? That this is just bread, but bread that is his body? And aren't every single article of the faith contradictory? Um, yes. So I'm going to believe what God says and put aside that reason that says it's contradictory. And the reason it says, don't believe that, that sounds like nonsense. Say, be quiet, reason. You, you got us into this mess. I'm going to trust, I'm going to trust God. And, and then once I have his word, then I'm going to turn my reason back on and use my reason in service to the word, right? Which is really kind of what I'm doing for you now. I'm using reason in service of the word as opposed to lording it over the word. Okay, well, that's probably enough on that. Probably more than enough on that. Um, but it's, but it's important. I thank you for bringing that up. Okay, so the efficacy of the word, um, as we've seen, it is efficacious, but it's not efficacious in the kind of magical spell sort of way. It's, it's efficacious when and where God pleases, and that's the plain way our Lutheran confessions put it. It is efficacious when and where God pleases. So it's not this kind of magical spell where, I mean, if it were, we could convert everyone in an afternoon, right? rent a helicopter and get one of those loudspeakers and just shout the gospel out to everyone and everyone would be bam. Um, so no, it's efficacious when and where God wills. There's mystery there. There's things we don't understand there. We don't understand how conversion works. We don't understand why, in some, and not, uh, why some and not others. We don't understand why not when I was 16, but yes, when I was 20. We don't understand these things. They're hidden to us. They're mysteries to us. And it isn't our task as theologians to understand these things. It's our task as theologians to repeat God's word faithfully. That's what we want to do. 
All right, so um, 47, the efficacy, these are the giant words here, the efficacy of the scriptures is the teaching that God's word has power and authority. The Bible is much more than information. I mean, note that it is information, it's just more than information. The scriptures themselves are active. Yes. Anyone who's spent any time reading the scriptures knows this, that they're living and active. And the scriptures have a way of reading us while we're reading them. And they also have a way of being dynamic. And even though they, they speak objectively and truly, they speak to us in our own unique circumstances, nonetheless, not in a way where the meaning changes, but in a way where the application fits. The scriptures are living and active. All right. Um, God's word is the sword that the Holy Spirit is wielding in the world. And then it is the sword we wield as well against the principalities and powers of darkness. The efficacy of the scriptures is a foundational teaching. The loss of the efficacy of the scriptures is at the root of many of the errors of American Christianity. When the efficacy of the scriptures is lost, the result is great confusion with other doctrines, including conversion, the sacraments, the church, worship, evangelism, and our Christian living. Yeah, well, this is a big deal. If you're going to mess up on the Word of God and the Word of God is the fountain, then don't be surprised when it shows up in other areas of the faith as well. And that's Wolf Mueller's point. If God's Word is not efficacious, creative, and powerful, then we are looking for strength and power in other places, most often in ourselves. Okay, on the other hand, and let's just round it out, on the other hand, when we confess the clarity, sufficiency, and efficacy of the scriptures, we know the Word of God is where and how the Holy Spirit works in the world and how he works on and in us. The location of spiritual activity shifts from inside to outside, from my heart to God's word. Right, it's not my heart grasping a hold of God's word, it's God's word grasping a hold of my heart. It's this external thing that's affecting me, not me affecting it. This shift opens up the possibility of objectivity, the possibility of true certainty, and at last true and lasting comfort. In what sense? In the sense that we who are by nature subjective and incapable of objectivity are able to grasp hold of something objective and speak that truly and objectively. Yeah, this is, the, this is by the way, the great, the great antidote to relativism and the relativism of our age. I spent, um, I spent about, I think it was about 40 minutes listening to a three-hour lecture. I'm gonna, I might continue, I don't know. But the three-hour lecture was by this guy, and um, there's one of these on YouTube where it's got like 10,000 likes and like 20 people dislike it, so it's gotta be very good. But, but his whole argument was that society is a construct. And basically, he's, just, he's, he's kind of going along making the case that, uh, that our epistemology as humans is 
subjective. Where did you learn everything you know from another human being who learned it from another human being, from learning from another human being, and then all these institutions that pretend to be objective, like higher learning and science and all of this, are distorted by what we want to be told and what we want to be true and money and what's profitable and all of these other things. And the whole picture he's painted is that is that um, not only are we subjective and incapable of knowing the truth, but this, this objective reality we've collectively constructed is itself just mass subjectivism, is a mass hallucination. Absolutely right. What saves you from that? I mean, frankly, it sounds hellish, doesn't it? It sounds like a personal individual's mass self-deceit and then a corporate collective humanity subject to its own mass deceit. Gosh, doesn't that sound theological? Almost as if like you would looked at what the devil was doing to the whole of humanity, it was just that. <gasps> I think it's so true. Now, I really doubt very much, based on the like to dislike ratio in the, in the bottom, that his answer is going to be God. That his answer is going to be the external objective reality of God that can penetrate that delusion and bring us out of our personal and corporate delusion and hallucination into true, what is true and objective and right and always has been and align us as individuals and then collectively as a new human, a new human race, a new humanity, the church, as a, as a corporate humanity in line with the word of God. I mean, that's exactly the project. That's exactly what we're doing. We will know him even as we are known. Well, how does he know us? Objectively, truly. How will we know him? In the same way, objectively, truly. And so conforming ourselves into the image of God's word is escaping that mass hallucination and coming to know the truth and, and uniting ourselves with the only, the only way out of that conundrum. There is no other way out of that conundrum. That conundrum's true. There's no other way out of it than to posit an external objective truth, namely God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so... Maybe that's, uh, maybe that's enough on this section for today. I will loiter around if you have extra questions or comments or, or there's things that uh, confounded you in this section. Next week, let's get into um, this question. Where is the comfort? And we're going to hit that topic of the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Do we, do we like it or not like it? And we will close, we will seek to close out this chapter on the scriptures next week. The Lord be with you.